Morning, everybody. Yeah, thanks, Emma, for that. Um, and it is good to be together, even even though it's in this strange kind of Zoom space. Um, I'm going to try something a little different to this morning, and I've got some slides, so I'm I'm kind of juggling technology. So bear with me if things get a little crazy. But um, <clears throat> I'm going to share my screen, and I'm not sure what devices you're all using, but I've noticed that when you share a screen, you can see you can see the slides and you can see a little window of the person's face talking. You can adjust those to make them different sizes if you like, um, if it makes it easier to to see everything. Um, so I'm just going to share my screen now. And hopefully... Um, Here we go. Does that look okay? Yeah, awesome. All right. Thanks. Cool. Okay. Well, yes. Um, carrying on in our in our series on people in prayer this morning, and uh, you know, I've I've found this series really helpful so far, actually, and particularly what I've really found helpful in it is this sense of reassurance. I think in studying the lives of of people who have gone before us, especially studying the lives of people who have, who have lived through uncertainty. Um, and I've just been thinking a lot about that, perhaps because of our current state, but, but just the idea that every generation has had to face something of a, an existential crisis, um, and yet every generation has come through it. You know, it, every one of us here today, every one of us on this Zoom call this morning, um, in some way are living proof of the fact that our ancestors were survivors. Um, and you know, right down to the molecular level of, of what makes us up, we're made up of the same stuff that made them, which means we we somehow carry both the the trauma and also the the triumphs of of our ancestors in our bodies. And it's it's pretty uh, dizzying to to consider this idea that that if your parents hadn't met, and if and if each of their parents hadn't met, and if each of their parents hadn't met. And if each of their parents hadn't met, um, and if just one of those 30 people, just in those five generations, 30 people it takes, um, if just one of those people were removed from history, you wouldn't be here today, which is, you know, um, probably quite a, a strange and but also quite a reassuring thought that, you know, you're, you're, you are here, you know, you're here this morning and it's kind of a miracle. Um, you know, each of those 30 people made it through, through difficulty. They, they made it through conception and pregnancy and childbirth and childhood and, and the, the car crash years of, of being teenagers or the, maybe the wagon crash years for our ancestors. Um, each of those individuals survived and, and here we are in our lounges or at, at each other's houses, um, as living, breathing testaments to them. And we're also, living, breathing testaments to the societies that produced each of those individuals and all of the collective challenges that each generation had to face and overcome. And I think it's, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's important to reflect on the significance of this, especially when we're living in such interesting times like, like, like ours. And, you know, maybe, maybe interesting times might sound like I'm putting it a little lightly, um, but it's a, it's a it's a phrase that actually goes back to this 
slightly backhanded blessing um, that goes, may you live in interesting times. May you be recognized by people in high places. May you find what you're looking for. Um, which, you know, you could, you could interpret in a good way or a bad way. Um, so we are, we are living in these interesting times, you know, general elections, uh, are interesting times. They make for interesting times. Pandemics make for interesting times. Uh, but the good news is that we're not the first generation to live through interesting times. And in fact, this, this whole series has shown us that, you know, Job and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Hannah and Daniel and Paul have all lived through interesting times. You know, many of them reluctantly came to the attention of the rulers of their day. And many of them had to rethink exactly what it was they were looking for when they found what they were looking for. So we're in good company with, with this series. And this morning, I'm looking at another character who, who lived in interesting times, uh, who was recognized by people in high places and who found what he was looking for. Um, and I'll see if you can figure out who I'm talking about. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis introduce the key questions that lie at the heart of the Christian and Jewish worldview. They are questions like, who are we? Where are we going? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution? So Genesis 1 to 11 sort of un, um, unfurls these questions for us. And then Genesis 12 begins to answer these questions by introducing us to Abraham and letting us in on these promises that God's made to him, which are namely uh, to give him land, um, to give him descendants, and to make him a, a conduit for divine blessing to all the people in the world. And the rest of Genesis tells the story of God working these promises out. So despite Abraham and his, be- and his family kind of being completely inept to do anything with these promises, um, lacking any natural ability in themselves to, to work these promises out. And actually, as, you know, as Matthew pointed out when, with his look at, at Jacob's life, they often really lack any ethical backbone as well. So, for the for the readers of, of Genesis, the the unfolding of of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's story is a bit like watching a, a toddler trying to handle something very delicate, you know, something that they've been given that's very delicate, um, and it's kind of a beautiful and terrifying process all at once to to watch this this happening. I'm sorry, Francis, for using you as an example, um, and I just want to say no monarch butterflies were hurt in the making of this slideshow. So anyway, the the book of Genesis is this delicate holding of the promises of God being given to people who really aren't equipped to do anything with them. And, uh, and, and yeah, they're, they're entrusted with this cosmic plan to maintain the purity of the covenant family tree. Um, and each of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all kind of stumble. They all, um, keep stumbling on these reoccurring crises, which threaten the plan. So the crisis, the crisis we see it crop up again and again in each of their lives, but then the, 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 all of these different crises really converge in the story of Joseph, who is our character for this morning. Um, so Joseph, profiling Joseph. 
Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob, finds himself in the, in the most impossibly dire situation, basically. His family is marked by divisions and violence, and it's reminiscent of, of Cain and his descendants. So if you think about Genesis 1 to 11 and, and the Joseph story being two bookends of the book of Genesis, everything that went wrong in Genesis 1 to 11, we're beginning to see cropping up again. It's like the weeds were sown in Genesis 1 to 11, and now they're blooming again in Jacob's life. His family's marked by division. Um, Joseph, his younger son, shows this wonderful blend of, of stupidity and arrogance when he, he decides to disclose to his older brothers the details of this prophetic dream that he had where he saw them all bowing down to him, including Jacob. And um, unfortunately for, for Joseph, his brothers are, you know, just happen to be unbelievably cruel um, so that when he comes to visit them um, where they're farming, they plot to, to murder this dreamer um, before suddenly kind of changing their mind and opting to sell him into slavery. Uh, slavery again. Sorry, I've missed my slides. Um, so their, their total lack of concern for their brother, as well as, you know, some details of some other sordid affairs, and in Genesis 38 um, represents, you know, paints a picture of a family that's just completely fractured. Um, and that surely is not going to be able to cope with another generation. It's about to, it's about to crumble in on itself. And in addition to this, in addition to the covenant family collapsing, um, Jacob's family finds itself in the middle of a global famine, which again endangers the, the life of everybody. So Joseph's story has has strong echoes back to the story of 1 to 11, Genesis 1 to 11, where everything's going from bad to worse. And, and as a result, we as readers of Genesis are left with a sense, I think, of despair that we're sort of wondering, well, how is God going to resolve this curse that seems to be running amok in Abraham's family line? Um, and thankfully, God per- perseveres with Joseph, who turns out to be um, a remarkably noble character in the end. So I ho- I'm hoping everyone's relatively familiar with the story. Um, and if you're not, you can always go back and read it. But just sort of a, a quick sketch. Joseph um, is sold into slavery and he quickly proves himself in Egypt and rises to the highest position a slave can get as the overseer of Potiphar's house, who happens to be the captain of the Egyptian army. But unfortunately, um, Potiphar's wife ends up libeling Joseph. So Joseph gets thrown into, into prison kind of indefinitely. We're, we're not sure what's going to happen to Joseph. Um, so the story could have ended there. You know, that would have been a, a bleak ending to, to the story. But God intervened and, you know, through another series of prophetic dreams, Joseph is, is vindicated in a really remarkable way. Um, and he ends up being promoted again to the to the position to an even higher position as the vice regent or like the prime minister, I guess, of of the Egyptian Empire. So it's a yeah, you get whiplash when you're reading the story of Joseph. He's kind of going down and up and down and up the whole time. Um, and being you know raised in church myself, I've, I've I guess I've been quite familiar with the Joseph story for as far back as I can really remember. Um, although, um, 
you know, it might even be familiar to those of us who, who weren't raised in Christian families. Um, it's kind of a, it's a well-known story, isn't it? Um, and I've always understood the story of Joseph as really being one about highlighting God's providence, you know, like that no matter how bad things get, God's going to work, God's going to work it out in the end. And I was taught to apply that sort of, that insight from the book of Joseph, Joseph to my personal life. And I think that's a legitimate way of reading um, the book of jo- uh, the story of Joseph. Um, and, and, and in particular, in Genesis twenty verse Genesis fifty verse twenty, we we get something of a, a conclusion to the book of Genesis, which highlights this idea. Um, so Joseph's brothers, um, even though they're sort of still acting in bad faith, they they try to deceive um, Joseph into believing that before their father died, he'd made and to, uh, he sort of made a promise that that um that Joseph wasn't allowed to take revenge on them for selling them into slavery. So because his brothers are nervous that Joseph's going to get payback once Jacob's dead, they they tell this fabricated story. But Joseph responds really graciously and says, "You know, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good." Which is almost um the verse that sits over the entire book of genesis you know what 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 people intended for evil god is going to turn around and intend for good and you know the the truth is that that god is working behind the scenes in in all of our lives um you know transforming us um leading us through through difficulties leading us through our own um you know, our own wounds and our own trauma. And, you know, God is a redeeming God. You know, he, he's in the in the business of turning our our messed up lives into something beautiful. And that's that's something that we, you know, we continue to affirm every week, you know. Um, yeah, but yet to stop there with that sort of, with that message, true and encouraging as it is, you know, that, that like Joseph, um, God will transform our pain and something beautiful. I think to stop there would miss actually something that's even going on in the text, which may even be more um, deeply encouraging and helpful. So I'll sort of put differently, if we treat the story of Joseph merely as an example of the fact that God redeems, then we miss the fact that the story is actually about God's God working out a bigger plan a more fundamental plan to solve the more fundamental problems that are plaguing humanity. So Joseph's story is, is designed to be read in connection with Genesis one to 11, um, almost as the answer to Genesis one to 11. So it's not, it's not a morality tale. Um, it's not a, you know, go and do likewise type tale. Um, it's actually a story about God using Joseph to resolve each of these recurring problems in Abraham's family. The key figure in the Joseph story isn't Joseph, it's God. God is the one who achieves everything. God is the one who does everything. Um, God is the one who finds a way to keep his promises. So God is the one who gives the promise. And then God is the one who follows through on the promise. God is the one who makes good on his promises despite the fact of being kind of dealt the worst hand imaginable. It's like a remarkable thing that God makes these outrageous promises and then gives them to the people who are least able to deal with them and yet still is able to turn it into good. 
So yeah, it's a story about all that God has achieved rather than a story to derive um, general principles from, I think. So if we recall um, God's promise to Abraham or to Abraham of descendants, of descendants of land and that he would be a divine blessing. We see in the, in the very late chapters of Genesis how God relates to Joseph as, as his principal agent to bring these promises into fruition. So through Joseph's act of forgiveness, God brings the family, you know, the family line back into a functional state of unity. Um, he also uses Joseph to fulfill his promise to multiply Abraham's seed by, you know, Joseph provides land for the Hebrews. He provides land for his family, which allows them to multiply and allows them to retain their own kind of cultural integrity as Hebrew people living in Egypt. And, you know, and instead of everyone succumbing to this mass starvation event, God preserves Abraham's offspring as well as the, you know, as well as the people of Egypt through Joseph's prophetic dreaming and wise management of Pharaoh's empire. It's like wherever Joseph is put in in charge of anything, just blessing explodes out everywhere. You know, blessing just spills over onto everyone and everything around him. So, um, and, and, and even more so picking up on, on Genesis 17, 6, where God promises Abraham that, that, you know, from his descendants, there will be like a royalty and kings would come from his descendants. Joseph, Joseph also, um, stands in this royal role, almost foreshadowing it in his childhood with his, um, with his dreams that got him into so much trouble and being given this coat of, of many colors, which, which in the ancient Near East signifies royalty. So, so his rise, um, his rise to the, to the royal court, um, is not merely evidence of Joseph vindicating, uh, Joseph being vindicated sort of as an individual. It's not just a story about God rescuing Joseph. Um, it's actually, um, uh, tangible evidence of God's unswerving commitment to restore human rule through a descendant of Abraham. So God, God promises Abraham this dynasty, um, and this royal seed, and Joseph becomes the first glimpse of what that will be. A new Adam, um, mediating God's blessings to the world, um, and a beloved son and a servant king. So we see these um, Christological lenses coming into the, into the story of Joseph. It's not just, yeah, like it's not just about a principle about how God works. It's actually a very key part of our story, our narrative that, that helps us to explain our lives in the world. So with all that sort of in mind, um, and, you know, in the context of, of a general election, which always brings out the craziness in our country, you know, the fact that our general election is coinciding with the American general election this year, and which it only does every 12 years. So it feels like kind of craziness multiplied. And then add a pandemic to that, um, add ongoing times of isolation for us as a church, as a people. You know, we are living in interesting times. We are living in difficult times. Um, so what what do we learn from this story uh, of Joseph? We see, you know, like I said before, that that he 
he lived in interesting times, came to the attention of people in high places and got what he was looking for, um, and just not in the way he would have expected. And, and knowing that it all turns out well in the end for Joseph can, um, I think, well, when, but when we are f- too familiar with the Joseph story, we can sort of miss the fact, we can forget how difficult it must have been for Joseph, you know. We can forget, like, what it must have been like to ricochet from honor to dishonor, you know, from being loved to being hated, from being known to being forgotten, from being part of a family to being all alone in a dungeon, you know. Um, and, you know, perhaps we we can resonate uh, just a little bit with this experience of and being locked down and, and being isolated from each other. I mean, I certainly... I'm certainly not loving the season we're in. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm finding it hard to, you know, I, I think I'm missing everybody and I'm really missing being part of a, a physically gathered church. It's really starting to become difficult, I think. So, I, I, and, you know, I think perhaps it maybe even for others of us, there's a sense of um, disappointment, you know, perhaps of, of what, what this year was supposed to be, um, maybe a sense that it's not really panned out the way we thought it would maybe even some grief around what's been taken away, you know, what's been denied us, the kind of hopes and promises that we thought we were going to see come together this year, which just aren't happening. Um, you know, these are real things for us. Um, but Joseph's story, I think, reminds us that, that God is at work sort of in multiple levels. You know, he's at work both as the author of our individual stories, each of our individual stories, we can trust him with our stories. You know, we can trust him with our lives. And he's also at another level, he's, he's the redeemer of our collective story, you know, like of the story of who we are as a people, as a church, um, as a, as a nation, as a global, um, you know, people, as, as humanity, God is redeeming us on all these different levels even though right now it's difficult to see how, because um, we are living in interesting times. But but hopefully by by studying Joseph's story, and I, yeah, like I do encourage us to, to read it this week if you can, um, but by studying his story, we can sort of regain um, or remember with confidence that God God's at work, you know, in the midst of, of chaos and and perhaps we too can access Joseph's attitude of, of quiet trust and God's ability to, to work his promises out to fruition, um, maybe in surprising ways. And this series is, is uh, People in Prayer. And interestingly, Joseph, there, there's no record of Joseph's prayers in the book of Genesis. Um, and you could say, well, he wasn't a praying man, maybe. Or, or you could say perhaps there's something of his life which is a prayer. You know, um, there's, there's a quietness to his prayer, um, almost a silence to Joseph's prayer, which I think may, may be, uh, again, a relevant method to add to our toolkit of, of how to pray in times like these, a quiet trust that um, that God's doing something. We just don't know what. And, yeah, I guess the final thought really is to is to consider that Christological reading of Joseph's story. So, you know, we might also like to consider the ways in which Jesus prefigures, sorry, Joseph prefigures Jesus. 
So, you know, Jesus as this beloved son, you know, Jesus entrusted his life to the father, you know, Jesus went into, you know, like a, a lamb among the wolves, you know, um, he, he went through tremendous suffering and death. He was rejected by his own family. He was rejected by the people that, that he created, um, you know, obedient unto death and yet was glorified and vindicated as, as savior, not just of Israel, but savior of all people for all time. And um, Jesus gave us these prophetic symbols to keep this idea in mind. Um, as we live through interesting times, um, these prophetic symbols that help us to anticipate the fullness of of redemption. So as we take communion together this morning, um, and hopefully you've got communion somewhere close by, um, as we take communion this morning, let's, I just wanted to help maybe consider the, the meaning again afresh of the bread and the wine. So so there are four cups of wine taken in a Passover meal, in a cedar meal. Traditionally, Jesus and the disciples sat down for a cedar meal the night before Jesus' arrest. Um, and they drank the first two cups of wine. But when it came time to drink the third cup of wine, Jesus, you know, brought the wine glass up, if you like, and then declined to drink it. But instead, he gave it to his disciples. And Luke describes it in this way. It says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, this cup, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So the third third cup in the cedar meal is the cup of redemption. So Jesus drinks the first and the second, but he doesn't drink the third. Instead, he offers the third to his disciples. Jesus was, therefore, I think, indicating to his disciples that his path of suffering would be for them their, rede- their redemption, kind of like, like Joseph, you know, like the one going before, the one who would suffer so that those that coming behind would be saved. He also suggested that he wouldn't drink the fourth cup, which is the cup of, of thanksgiving, until the kingdom of God came in its fullness. So he cut short the, the typical dinner party. You know, there's supposed to be four cups of wine. He had the first two, shared the third, and then said, right, let's go. We're not having the fourth cup. Um, so he creates in this moment a sense of tension between the now and the not yet. Um, he says, I've, I've poured out the third cup, and together we will share the fourth cup, but not now. So this morning... I'd like us as a church to, you know, to like the, to be like the disciples, to take the bread and to take the third cup that Jesus offers us as a prophetic gesture. So we accept this, this cup being offered to us. It's offered to us by Jesus, not, not by the church. It's offered to us by Jesus himself, his blood poured out on our behalf. And as we take the cup and we take the bread Jesus invites us to anticipate the time when he will return and when he will finally understand that, you know, when we will finally understand that God is and God always has been victorious. So with that, I invite you to share communion amongst yourselves or or share communion with us here together.
and then um, I think Emma's going to to play a song. So thank you.